Welcome to The Alcove. Today, our guest is Leslie Chesterman. So I want to thank you all for joining us for this fourth talk of our second year of Alcove. And we're very excited to welcome uh, someone who we've read, admired, and listened to for years, Leslie Chesterman. Before I tell you a little bit about our guest, I want to give those of you experiencing Alcove for the first time a little bit more information about what we do. So every month, Alcove brings together success stories and visionaries that we admire, and we give you a chance to ask your questions. We keep it small and cozy to make sure that our guests are candid. We ask them to tell us about uh, what's worked for them, what hasn't, and hopefully make a discovery to, uh, of their own. The location for Alcove changes every time we do um, the talk. And so today we have the great pleasure of being in this restaurant called Butterbloom. So Julie, Nadine, and Jens are gracious hosts tonight. Butterbloom is a day spot that serves breakfast, lunch, and brunch with a boutique space in the front with some hand-picked items for sale like fresh flowers, home goods, and books. Now, whether you're a diehard foodie or you occasionally Google tonight's guest to get inspired for some reservations for the weekend. If you live in Montreal, you have absolutely heard of Leslie Chesterman. So Leslie has been the fine dining critic and food columnist for the Montreal Gazette since 1998. It's a long time. As a freelancer, her writing has also appeared in Gourmet Magazine, The National Post, The New York Post, and Eater to name a few. She's a graduate of the Institut de Tourisme et d'Hôtellerie du Québec and began her career working as a professional pastry chef in Quebec and France and later teaching professional cooking. You can also hear Leslie on radio in French during Radio-Canada's Medium Large and in English on Foodies Rock on Shome. Leslie has also authored three books, Boulangerie, Pâtisserie, Technique de Base, and two editions of Flavorville, Leslie Chesterman's Guide to Dining Out in Montreal. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us here tonight. Um, now that we know who we're dealing with tonight, I'd like to start off with a quick round version of our 20 questions. Uh-oh, okay. So I will ask you to answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Don't think about it too hard. We just want to get to know you better. Okay. I was born in... Montreal. At ITHQ, I studied... Pastry. Ever since I was a kid, I've always listened to... My mother. <laughs> The best meal I had in the last two weeks was at? My house on Sunday night that I made. <laughs> What did you make? I made uh, chicken with dill. Mm. The, uh, Wolfgang Puck said he doesn't need restaurant critics' approval. I would say... Fuck you, Wolfgang. <laughs> <laughs> I usually have dinner around... Uh, 7.30. Okay. The recipe people ask me for the most often is? Rigatoni with spicy sausage and rapini. That sounds delicious. It's fantastic. Agree or disagree with Morley Safer's quote? No great pastry chef has a sweet tooth. Oh, absolutely disagree. They're all huge, fat, sweet, loving <laughs> gluttons. The best ones. Pierre Hermé, Philippe Conticini, they're all huge guys who love to eat. Great. Uh, here's my take on life in the kitchen. Tedious. Mm-hmm. True or false? I almost love cooking more than I love my kids. Um, <laughs> I'll take the fifth, but it's a little bit true. It depends on the day. True or false? I read other food critics' work. Absolutely. Everybody. Yep. I have worked at the Gazette for? Uh, too long. 20 years. But I'm a freelancer. I'm not staff at the Gazette. 
Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that as right. well. Right. As a chef, the number one quality you need to have is? Intelligence. As a restaurant critic, the number one quality you need to have is? Oh, God, that's a hard question. Um, depth of knowledge. You have to know what you're talking about. I eat out this many times a week. Uh, not more than twice. Do you have any food allergies? None. <laughs> My favorite cooking show is? Uh, I love Nigella Lawson's show. I did, but, but it's not on anymore. But I, I really fell hard for old Nigella. <laughs> okay. True or false? I use recipe books. Oh, absolutely. True, 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 true. I have a thousands at home. Really? I have about 2,000 cookbooks at home. Actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm giving a lot of ways this summer, so if you want cookbooks, come to my house. I have <laughs> Let too many us know when yes. and where, and we'll be there. Some good ones, too. Uh, in the kitchen, I wish I could make a mean... Salad dressing. My weakness. Okay. So lame. <laughs> So simple, yet so hard. Yeah. If I had to eat my last meal at a restaurant in Montreal. Um, right now, I would go to Moleskin. Really? Yeah. Right now, I'd go to Moleskin and have one of their great pizzas, and then I'd have about three of their great pizzas. And then I'd go upstairs, and I'd have about three balls of wine, and then I would have their nice pasta. And, yeah. Wow. Yeah, but that's this week. Yeah. Great. You made it through. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and I stopped on the restaurant credit question, which is interesting. <laughs> All right, let's get started. So when we hear the name Leslie Chesterman, it's synonymous with food, cooking, and restaurants. But as a teenager, right. you were set to become a ballet dancer. Right, I wanted to be a ballet dancer. Um, so tell us kind of how you made your way from ballet dancer to the food industry and what that journey right. was like. Well, as a kid, I was the kid whose mom, working mom, would every you know, two days after school would put us in the church basement to go to ballet class. But I'm the kid who got hooked on ballet, whereas everybody wanted to get out of there. I didn't want to ever leave. So I really wanted to be a ballet dancer because I used to be really skinny before I started to eat a lot. And, um, and then I just, it was the thing I was really good at. And you know, when you're a kid, and I wish my kids would find what they're really good at because I don't think they've found it yet, but I was always the best in my ballet class. And I was a very physical kid, you know. And... So then I just, when I kept going to school, and I was good-ish at school, but since I went to French school when I was young, and I went to English school in high school, being the perfect Montreal Anglophone, um, <coughs> by the time I got to high school, I really was struggling in English. So school was always a little bit hard for me. I think I'm convinced it's because I actually did it in two languages intensely, and so I think it confused me a lot. And so... What I really loved was gym class and ballet. I liked gymnastics and all these things that were more physical. So when I finished high school, I told my parents I wanted to be a ballet dancer and I wanted to quit school. And they actually let me do it, which is unbelievable because my parents are very academic. And I think they thought it was a stage I was going through. And they're like, okay, or maybe they just neglected me. So they're like, okay, you know, like, go do whatever. You're not that smart anyway. So, like, so I went to ballet school, and I loved it. But then I realized after a while that it was the most grim and horrific atmosphere you could ever put a child in. I mean, it was like, I, I'm not going to say something, you know, flippant, like it was like a concentration camp, but it was absolutely a grim place to put a young person. And anybody who is interested in, in pursuing a, a life in the arts, I mean, unless you grew up in like the Soviet Union where you have like 
they choose the best kids and or your parents were in the arts it's very hard to become an artist because we have so far to go here in Montreal and and so I learned the hard way that I you know I'd look around me and I'd see all these delusional girls who are saying like I want to be a ballet dancer and I'd be like you're not that good you know <laughs> and like how can you be planning a career on something that is so difficult when really you may not have the talent so I kind of woke up one day and I said this isn't going to work out and in ballet school which I mentioned to you when we spoke before you're criticized all day long okay if you're a musician if I'm sure for actors it's the same thing visual artists anybody in the arts there's no hand-holding especially when I did it in the 80s I hear it's gotten a lot nicer but really like you get ahead if you're just constantly being picked apart and in ballet class it was you're too fat you're no good you're too this you're too that and I heard that all day long all day long okay so then when I decided ballet wasn't going to be the thing I uh, and I was eating like a grapefruit a day you know and I said to my parents they're like well why don't you go to school and I'm like the last place I want to go to school and sit at a desk all day because I'd been doing all this physical activity and I said I want to go to cooking school And my parents are like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, here she goes, you know. And so I went to Itesh and um, <clears throat> this exact same ambiance as ballet. Like, really high-level cooking is very artistic. And so you get into this ambiance where it's incredibly critical. And um, I loved it. I mean, I just loved it. And then one night, one of my teachers, there was an Itesh party, which in those days were, like, notoriously like people were taking their clothes off, you know, and I went to like Convent of the Sacred Heart. It's like all these girls, if like you put the wrong color bow in your hair, you get a detention. And then I go to cooking school, it's like, woohoo, you know, like, oh my God. And um, my teacher pulled me out and he's like, he's like, let's go have a coffee. And it's like, we're sitting in a strip club. <laughs> I was 19 years old. I'm in the strip club. I'm like, then I realized, well, we're on Saint-Denis and uh, Saint-Denis and St. Catherine's. It's like, that's all there is around there. And he's like, Je veux juste vous dire une chose, là. Arrêtez la pâtisserie. La pâtisserie, c'est de la merde. Okay? And I'm like, I've been reading Gourmet magazine. This is pre-Martha Stewart. It's so long ago. And I was so into it. And my teacher said, get out of this. This is the worst. Like, this is bottom. He said, you're a smart girl. Go to school. And I'm like, you're raining on my parade. Like, this is my choice. I don't want to go to school. Like, all my friends. I want to. So, you know, the, there was this constant... Um, idea when you're cooking, especially like you like especially if you're from any kind of a wealthy family, and I'm not from a wealthy family, but like cooking is really for people back then, people who are failing out of school. Like mm -hmm. you don't cook unless you really failed out of everything. That was the attitude back then. And I was devastated Even by this. Even at ETHQ that was Even at ETHQ, yeah. yeah. And also at Itashki, the kids in my class were 15, 16, and 17 years old, because back then you could do a diploma, which was a high school diploma with two years of cooking. Mm. I surrounded by young kids, and I was 19, 19 20, 21 years old. And um, I, this whole fantasy that I built around cooking was not the reality. The reality is you're in the kitchen all day. You're working very hard. Um, you're doing the same thing over and over again. It's not this kind of great creative fantasy that you're standing in front of a chafing dish. And, you know, you're not Julia Child. You're, you know, I worked at Patisserie Gascogne and we made cheese straws all day long for a week. So like nine hours of making cheese straws for a week. I'll Everyone's you, had those cheese straws like, like a cocktail. I make the best cheese straws now. Like, <laughs> I made hundreds of quiches. I made hundreds of birthday cakes. And so... 
you know, that was, so I went from ballet to cooking school to working in cooking. And, but also it was a very different atmosphere back in the 90s where things were like <coughs> grim. But you know, I mean, it was not the fantasy. Ballet wasn't the fantasy I thought it would be. Cooking wasn't the fantasy I thought it would be. Like, you know, when you're a kid, you have all these, you're such, such a little optimist, or at least I was. But then when you start working, you're like, wait, this is work. You know, I don't want to make the cheese straws. They're like, shut up and make the cheese straws. You know, you see what I mean? Like, I'm sure everybody's gone through that. That when you start to work, yeah. it's not what you thought it would be. For sure, but you still stuck through, and you yeah. decided, despite what your teacher said, to continue as a pastry chef. Yes, because then my one of my teachers said, what are you going to do for your stage in the summer? Because in between cooking school years, you have to do a stage. And I said, oh, I'm going to go to Banff, because <laughs> all my friends are going to go to Banff. Like, they're all going to be, you know, chambermaids. And I, was, I said, I'll get a job in the pastry department at Banff. My teacher's like, screw Banff, like, go to France. <laughs> and I'm like... What? Like, I didn't even think I could go to France. I'd been to France on vacation. Like, I'd been to Paris. But I'm like, I can't go work in France. He's like, why not? And I'm like, well, uh, you tell me. And next thing I know, I'm going to France. So I go to France, and I went to work in Lyon. And that was like the fantasy. That suddenly, I was not making cheese. I mean, I still was making cheese straws, but they were better, they were better cheese straws. Like, that was much better quality cheese straw. And, like, the, the whole atmosphere uh, which gets me very sad I'm not gonna start to cry but I haven't had enough wine but because and I'll tell you why because this is a big thing going on now it's like when I got to Lyon the summer of 1989 it was a big turning point in France because France was still there's still Francs the younger people may, you may not know what those are that was the money in France back then right? and like at the bat like I worked in this wonderful pastry shop and right in the middle of Lyon. And, you know, every morning, I kid you not, the farmer would pull up and bring you the cream. And then the next farmer would pull up and bring you his strawberries they just picked. It was like the fantasy of what we want food to be. So I lived that all, you know, all summer. I loved it. I worked with all these guys who were 15 years old. They were all hilarious and sweet. They never changed their cooking vest, however. <laughs> like, I was working with all these guys who were adorable, but I couldn't even get near them because they smelled so bad. And it's true, like in France, it was a whole other ball game. You know, I got, I had to go and live within the very shady part of town, but I didn't even care. Like I'd leap out of bed every morning and I'd run to work and I'd make the most beautiful cakes, like really, and I'd cover them with the farmer's fruit and I'd pipe on the farmer's cream and I'd eat it and it would just be like, oh. and then last year I went back to Lyon. So that's 20, that's a lot of years later, 30 years later. And I went and found that pastry shop, and there was a chain pastry shop there. It all had gone. No more farmers coming to town. Barely any independent pastry shops in Lyon anymore. It's all chain bakeries. That whole world that I knew is gone. So if I was starting today, and I wanted to do a stage in pastry, I'd probably work in a restaurant. But back then, nobody was working in restaurants. We worked in pastry shops. So that, I was, I feel happy. You know, like, my parents always, like, my dad, well, I remember, like, seeing gaslight in the streets of Dublin. And I'm like, do you also remember horses? He's like, yes. <laughs> and, like, I will say to the young generation, well, I remember when the farmer really came to the back door to deliver ingredients. Because, you know, there are people now who are going back to getting ingredients from farmers and stuff. But certainly, that is very much gone in France. Like, mm -hmm. France is changing so radically. So I feel like... Anybody who loves food, like, go to France soon because it's going down the tubes real fast, you know. 
So that was a big, so that was the fantasy. That, yeah. that, so finally I got to see that. And I carried that for a long, long time with me, you know, as motivation. Like how good food could be. Like what you're aiming for. Like, and you, when you talk about how good food can be, you're not aiming, you're talking about technique, you're talking about talent, but you're also talking about ingredients. You're talking about flavors. So when you, you know, we used to get uh, tomatoes and we eat, we'd eat them like apples. And I never ate a tomato before I got to Lyon. You know, and it sounds like, ugh, here she goes. But it's very true. Like, we eat them like apples. Mm -hmm. I never, you know, I'm, you're always looking for good stuff. But, like, everything then was good. Yeah. So when we look at your story, there's something that comes back a lot. And that's the theme of, you know, tenacity and determination. Um, you've talked about some of that stuff. You know, whether it's going through ballet school, whether it's being one of two Anglophones at ETHQ yeah, in a yeah. class of 2000, where you ended up being the best in your class. Um, you didn't mention this, but you broke your back when you were in France. Right, yeah, I did. I, I, well, never go out with um, the baker who's had too much to drink and then falls asleep at the wheel on the way home because you end up in the hospital for two weeks with a broken back. Yeah. I did, I, I broke my back, yeah. And um, so I, I, while I was working there, you know, and then all the mm -hmm. chefs would come in and they'd bring me, they'd bring me cookies, you know, it's okay. It was an adventure. It was an adventure. Pretty good. Like, she got cookies. Yeah, so. yeah. But this, uh, then I went to France a second time, and I worked for a very famous chef. And um, I got there, and I was all excited. And they kind of looked at me like, "What are we going to do with her?" You know, because the girls they would make them do like stupid stuff, and I'm like, "I'm not going to do that." You know. And as a woman, actually going into a kitchen in France was very interesting because, like, you ruled. Like, you they they were so like afraid of you in a way. Like, oh my God, there's a girl. What are we going to do with her? You know. So. You could say, I want to be in the chocolate department. They like they put you in the chocolate department. Like they 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 were I find very accommodating. That, surprising, that they would be so They didn't give you any big responsibilities, that's for sure. Like they nothing important, but you know, they listened to you and they you know, they was it was a very nice atmosphere, especially in France. Then I get back here and I'd work with a bunch of guys who were like 35 talking about the porno they saw the night before. And like after months and months of listening to the guys talking about the pornos, I'm like, I can't do this forever because like I'm starting to become them. I'm like, <laughs> I know that movie. Like, no, but like, you know, they, like you, you have to be careful. If you surround yourself for a long time, you are only as, you know, you should always, what's that line? You should always be the stupidest person in the room. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're the person in the room who like after a while doesn't want to just hear the gibberish about the weather and, the, and in kitchens is a lot of that talk. There's a lot of, and I don't even want to sound snotty and say I, I have to be around a bunch of intellectuals, but also if you're spending your whole day just listening to crap while you're rolling the cheese straws and you start to say, what am I doing with my life, right? Well, so that was kitchens back then. I want to talk about the kitchen atmosphere, and this is something that you've been, you know, this has been an issue that came up in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, when it came out that Toronto pastry chef Kate Burnham had filed a human rights complaint against the restaurant West Lodge, you tweeted something that got a lot of attention and in the media and online. And you said, you either deal with it or get out. And she'd been sexually harassed in the kitchen for two years. Yep. And you got a lot of backlash. You know, people said that you were victim shaming. So you went on CBC after and you talked about the fact that the context of what you had said was that she should have gotten out of there sooner. Uh, because when there's a toxic you know, environment, you need yep. to just make that move. And you would live that yourself, whether it was yep. in France or even here. But there's this understanding that, you know, this almost this ex acceptance that that's the environment in the kitchen. You talk about Gordon Ramsay, who has this completely horrifying attitude. You know, right. yes, he's a persona and that's his public persona, but it seems to be understood that in the kitchen, that's normal. Well, uh, certainly in France, 
a lot of things bothered me about that situation. First of all, the fact that she was in that kitchen for two years being abused is way too long. If anybody's treating you badly, I'm not victim shaming. I'm saying, why isn't anybody telling her to not waste two years of her life being surrounded by assholes? But whose job is it to change that? When you're young and you're starting out and, and you feel that your if success is based... If she had a cooking based, teacher, I was a cooking teacher for three years <coughs> at Pius X. And I really kept an eye on a lot of the kids that I worked with, the ones who wanted to... I think there also has to be a moment as women that we don't necessarily want to put up with that shit for a long time. I worked with a guy for eight months who every day pulled open my cooking uh, top and smelt me and told me what I smelt like that day. And he was my chef. So I had to, you know, I, I had to figure out how I was going to deal with that situation because I had to be there for eight months. And I loved where I was working, but I was working with a guy who was sexually harassing me constantly. He'd say things like, I'm going to tell you when you have your period. I'm really good at telling girls when they have their period. And I used to laugh at him, and I'd be like, good luck, buddy. You know, but, so I had to deal with him, so when I talk about deal with it, mm-hmm. at Patsyid Gascon one day, a guy forced me up against the wall and shoved his tongue down my throat, and I got out. Because he was one of the chefs, he was French, he was part of the upper management, and I said, I'm not going to stick around this guy. So I prefer women to take control of situations instead of spending two years putting up with this kind of abuse. That's me. That's me. But I lived it. Um, I know what it feels like. Um, and I also saw a much worse situation, which is I saw girls get abused, and I myself got abused. I saw boys being treated much worse. I saw young men who were beaten up. I saw people who were hit. I saw a guy who got a whole uh, bucket of cream poured over his head in the middle of a service. I saw kids shaking. I used to sit at night with young kids in France saying they wanted to kill themselves because because also young kids in France would go back to people who go into cooking. You know, if you go into cooking from a middle-class family, you have a lot of choices in life. In France, kids who are middle-class families don't go into cooking. In France, kids who go into cooking are kids who fail out of school. My ex-husband, at 14 years old, was taken from his mother and put into the local pastry shop. He worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, until he was 18 years old. That's close to slave labor that was handed to him. He failed out of school, and his parents, who were also pastry chefs, decided that's what he was going to do. And he's amazing. He's going to open up a pastry shop. Too. He's an amazing chef. He, he does. He's fantastic. But he started when he was 14. He was abused by those people in, in ways, toughened him up. But there are a lot of they're young, young kids going into those kitchens. They're being treated very, very badly. And I think we're not talking enough about girls have issues, but I saw those young kids shaking because I saw a young guy I worked with every day always had the maitre d' coming on to him. Are you going to come to my room tonight? Why don't we go for a drink together? And I said to the guy, why don't you tell him to fuck off? Because also being North American, we're much more candid. He's like, oh. He's my boss. If, if I leave here without a recommendation paper, I'll never work at a, another restaurant of this level. Because it's always about staying in the level or moving up to another starred restaurant. So I think if we're going to talk about abuse, mm-hmm. let's put a big, under a big umbrella and not just say this one girl in this situation. I also don't know the details of what she did. If I was her mom, I'd say, you deal with it or you get out. Get out as soon as you can. And then somebody says, well, then you're opening up the door for the next person who's going to come in who's going to be abused. But what happens if you go to management and you say, these three creeps are bugging me constantly, what are you going to do about it? What if management does nothing? 
guess my issue yes, with Yes, you can that, go to the police. Yes, you can file a... She filed a complaint, absolutely. She yeah. did, but at the end of the day, it's almost to be expected that this is the type of behavior that happens in a kitchen, and it's not surprising to A anybody. lot of male chefs would be very upset to hear that, and then mm. it's unfair to put all male chefs together that they're all creeps. I worked with so many wonderful men in the kitchen, so many great guys, um, you know... I ended up, you know, marrying one of them. Uh, he wasn't sexually abusing me. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, oh, that came later. No, I'm kidding. But, um, but, you know, it's unfair. I also don't like this ragging on male chefs all the time. I think a lot of the male chefs are starting to feel like, you know, they're not all like that. And it can happen in any, it can happen in an office. It can happen mm-hmm. anywhere that people are sexually abused. Can we show me some statistics that (coughs) sexual abuse is worse in a kitchen than anywhere else? I think abuse on the whole. You know, in my ballet school, I saw a lot of sexual abuse there too with young Mm -hmm. men, with teachers, with kids, little young kids being told they're garbage. You know, we're in a world of abuse and now we're fighting back against it. But certainly when I was in the kitchen, you know, the the chef who treated all the guys like shit treated me like gold. So, you know, there, there are... Every situation is its own situation. I just wish when things are going badly, two years to me is way long for that to have been going on. You know, like how could she, how could she go back in there? No. So, and tell those guys to fuck off and leave me alone. Like we have to stand up as women. We have to stand up for ourselves and really like get off me. Like leave me alone, go away. And like, if he comes back the next day, you go to the boss and then you quit or you, you, or you, you deal. Like, I mean it. I just can't imagine myself two years, you know, this is a big like rant. I'm sorry, but <laughs> she needed to big, no, well, it's a big issue. It's, it's become the issue for many people, but I also think let's not rag on the guys too much. You know, there are a lot of great guys in kitchens too, you know, so women when, can be abusive too. Right? <laughs> so when we spoke, you talked about the dark side and it had nothing to do with sexual abuse or anything like right. that in a kitchen and I think that's something that we really should be talking about tonight you mentioned the fact that the word critic has such a negative connotation yeah. in general and I want to start by asking you the most obvious question how do you feel knowing that you can either make or break the reputation of a restaurant well I sense that all the time but I actually see so many restaurants I gave bad reviews to that are doing extremely well. There are a lot of restaurants that I gave bad reviews to that are full. I, somebody told me recently they're having dinner next to somebody and their restaurant closed and said it was all Leslie Chesterman's fault. And I thought, you know, that's not true. Your restaurant was crappy. Your restaurant was crappy. There are a lot of problems in your restaurant. It's not because I pointed them out in the paper. Everybody also. Everybody will notice that along the way. It's too expensive. The portions were too small. It was so dark you couldn't see your food. The menu was meaningless. Eventually, it closed. That girl. Ben, c'était la faute de Leslie Chesterman. Ben, excuse-moi là, mais Leslie Chesterman a seulement dit que vous savez pas ce que vous faites. Like, we're 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 walking in and we're telling people this is great and this is not so great. But okay. So the thing is with critics is that it's how you say it too. You know, like, um, you don't want to write a review where you annihilate somebody, like, that you're just totally mother superior doing this, like, you're just so bad. Well, you have a few right? rules, right, as to how you should review, when you should review. Tell us a little bit yeah. about that. so you don't go into a restaurant too early. 
I mean, I always say you want to catch a restaurant with their pants up, not their pants down, which means you want to get a restaurant at, at its best. You want the rest. You want to have something great to write about. Somebody, there's a guy called Pete Wells, who's the great restaurant critic of uh, the New York Times, and he said he wants a restaurant review that every week he's dropping. He's like a golden retriever dropping a ball at the foot of his master. I think that's such a great image that actually you want to be handing readers a, a gift, like go to this restaurant. It's great, but I'm not a blogger, so it's not everything is rosy, right? Because that's more of a blogger thing that everything is great, even when it's not great. Um, but, uh, yeah, I see that a lot, too. I see a lot of bloggers who, like, think great restaurant. And are getting paid to go review. One blogger is like, go to eat in Houston's in Quebec City. And I'm like, of all the great restaurants in Quebec City, you're telling people to go to Houston's, a chain steakhouse. Like, Maybe it's really good. How big was the check that Houston's cut you to say that, you know? I'm sorry, but I really ask myself some questions. And um, anyway, so you want to catch the restaurant with pants up. You want to catch the restaurant at their best. Because you, you, it's no fair to catch a restaurant. Like, ooh. For, um, I recently wrote a review of uh, Les Enfants Terribles that I really, like, annihilated them. And I waited three... For those of you who didn't read that review, she gave them no stars. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If I, if, if I could have given negative stars, I would have done it. Because um, it had been open for three months, and it had gotten not very many reviews. And I went because it was on the top of Place Ville Marie, and there's a lot of buzz, and they'd done a ton of publicity, and all the bloggers loved it. And I went, and they were rude to me all night long. And I waited two hours for my table, and I'm sitting outside, shake, shivering. And then I, you know... At the end, I even said who I was, you know, and, and I never do that because I just thought, I, I can't believe you guys are treating me like, like shit. And, I, and I'm like, but this is so great because I can be there for all the people who stood at the same hostess desk and were treated like shit because I'm writing for all of us, you know? A good restaurant critic is writing for everybody, you know? So when these things happen, it's important to talk about them because... Otherwise, people don't know, and they could go there, and they could end up having a terrible, a terrible dinner. So, you know, we, we're, we're always writing for the readers. I want to talk about some of the reviews that you've done. I asked you when we spoke if there's anyone you gave a heads-up to that you were about to give a negative review. And you told me that, <coughs> although that wasn't the case, you had decided not to publish a review you had written for Ledger. Uh, yes, that one, I hadn't written it. Oh, I just thought of another one. Because um, <laughs> I've written close to a thousand reviews now. So it's like some restaurants have been, re like Lalu, I reviewed eight times. It's like this blur of Lalu. I have to go back. I'm gonna, um, but yeah, so I was ready to review this restaurant. The night wasn't so great. And I get an email. I mean, I don't think it was a letter. Do people, does anybody get a letter anymore? I think it was an email. And it was a long email saying, please don't review me, I'm going through a really hard time right now, uh, ex, I lost my chef, da, da 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 And I read it and I thought, okay, fine. And I absorbed the cost, I didn't give the bill into my paper, because I'm supposed to only uh, get reimbursed for things I write about. So that cost me $300, but whatever, okay. Struggling writer cost me $300, but again, I don't want to, um, I don't want to rip them, them apart. Pants. And then there's another one. I, I, re I reviewed a Greek restaurant, and it was just not so great, but it just basically wasn't so great. And afterwards, I got a long email from the man saying, how could you have reviewed me? My son's at the children's hospital dying. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, like, 
I said, I didn't know any of this. I don't know, you know, this other woman says, how could you have reviewed me? I was pregnant. I was at home. It was my sous chef there. And I'm like, put a note on the door, like send out a press release. I don't know anything about your personal life, you know, but these things are, uh, no, there was a review that I just remembered now that very sneaky and I will, I'm seeking my revenge on this one. Do that, tell. There's a restaurant <laughs> that I went to and I wrote up the whole review and they contacted me and they said, we're changing everything next week. We're changing our menu. We're changing our chef. We're changing everything. You can't review us because they call the newspaper calls to get a picture. And I'm like, oh, shit, okay, well, hmm. Was I, it a bad review? It wasn't a great review. <laughs> it wasn't a barn burner, but it, the barn wasn't burnt, but it was kind of semi-burnt. And so the, um, I wrote the whole review, which is like, it takes like blood, sweat, and tears to write some of these reviews. And because I write, I go away, I eat a sandwich, I have, you know, I call people, I go on to... Facebook. I, so it takes me like two days to write a review. It should take like two hours. but take, So I have to ditch the review, which is grim. And also you don't get paid for it. I'm sorry, it's my job too, mm -hmm. right? So I'm like, ah, I absorb the cost of the meal. And then I hear a month later, a chef who I know who works near that restaurant said, oh, they, they totally lied to you. It was all bullshit. They just didn't want to get reviewed. They didn't change the menu. They didn't change the chef. And I'm like, <gasps> right? Fire coming out of my ears. But then the restaurant eventually closed. I mean, this is not serious. A, a serious restaurant should want to be reviewed. You don't want to tell us who it was? No, I won't tell you. <laughs> just in case there's a mafia connection. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> might be a mafia so I want to make sure we have time to talk about Montreal. Right. And the Montreal food seat. And that's something that I know yeah. some of our guests want to hear about. And uh, my boyfriend shared an article with me where David McMillan of Joe Beef, which right. is somebody that you are close to, said that Toronto had become the great Canadian food city. And when talking about Montreal, he said there haven't been many new restaurants. And as far as competition, there hasn't been much growth. You've been a cheerleader for the Montreal food scene yeah. since day one. Yeah. Do you agree with him? Well, David is a friend of mine, and I knew him before as a restaurant critic, but I respectfully disagree for one reason. I, although he denies it, I don't think that he goes out to eat very much in Montreal. I think he's going out to eat a lot in Toronto these days. I eat everywhere in Montreal, like 95 times. I eat all the time. Like, uh, my whole body is Montreal restaurant meals. And um, I think if you're going to come to that conclusion and you haven't been to, like, a lot of restaurants, not just the hot restaurants or anything. You have to kind of understand a restaurant scene isn't just 10 hot restaurants. You know, a restaurant scene is really about the number of, uh, of good restaurants that are even outside of the Eater 38 or something. Uh, a restaurant scene has to do with the amount of local produce, the cheeses we produce here. Uh, we don't have wines here like they have in, in, in Ontario, but... <coughs> We have a very deep food culture. And I can't think of one famous woman chef in Toronto. We don't have enough famous women chefs here either. Um, I don't go to Toronto enough to eat to have a, a solid opinion on this, mm -hmm. to be completely honest. And yet the fact that I don't go to Toronto a lot to eat might say a lot too. But, you know, there's a different thing is that I'm English growing up in Montreal. So Toronto is like the enemy. It always has been. It's always been like the place your dad gets transferred to and you hope he says no to the transfer, which happened to my dad three times. 
And so, you know, for a while, Montreal, the thing that we had, like as we saw Toronto just explode and get great and, you know, money, 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 we always had the great food scene. We always had the great restaurant scene. So when I read those words of David's, I, I, I have to admit that I exhaled pretty loudly because I, 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 I think that's a little bit sad if we lost that. I, there are a lot of things in Toronto that are concepts that are lifted from elsewhere. You know, they, they have this big Momofuku restaurant, which was, you know, David Chang given millions of dollars to open this restaurant. Uh, I'm completely against that. That's one of the reasons I flipped out over Joelle Robichaud. I think a restaurant scene is not based on the fact of whether or not you have a cheesecake factory. I think it's whether or not you have homegrown chefs who are using uh, in ingredients from here with ideas from here. It has to be, you know, they can, influences can come from the outside, but it has to be people who are on the ground here and not just concepts that you bring in from Paris or New York or, you know, and, and when Mamafuko opened up in uh, Toronto, a food writer in Toronto I know said, well, isn't it great that Mamafuko owned up, uh, opened up, maybe we'll get on that world's 50 best list. And I thought, if we get on the world's 50 best list with a restaurant from New York, that is the worst thing that could ever happen to our food scene. It just proves that we're absolute losers, that we absolutely have nothing to offer, that the best we have to offer is a guy from New York who was given millions of dollars to open a restaurant. You know, so that bothers me a lot. I, I, I think, I mean, good for Toronto if that happens too. I mean, you don't... But you still feel we can hold our own. You know, a girlfriend of mine went to the best restaurant in Toronto last week and she said the sommelier spent 10 minutes telling us where Alsace was. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought that says a lot. You know, if you go out to eat here, I don't think you're going to get a lecture on where else ass is. No? Unfortunately, we're going to have to end it here. I have a hundred more questions, oh. but we're out of time. So we'll take a quick... Do you want to have five more minutes? Oh, I do. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> well, now which one do I choose? Um, Drink some wine. <laughs> I think I want to talk about the advice that you have to give. You, you mentioned this when we started... You've been at the Gazette for 19 years. Right. You are still a freelance writer. You were never hired full-time. Right. You have taken a lot of other gigs to make ends meet, essentially. Right. What would you say to someone that wants to become a food writer? I'd say don't do it. I would absolutely <laughs> say don't do it. If I did it all over again, I wouldn't do it. You work... Okay, so everybody thinks it's the best job in the world. Really, everybody's like, oh, you've got the best job in the world. <laughs> And I also live with the wine writers. So, like, the two of us are, like, <laughs> I want to say we're on skid row because we eat and drink extremely well. But we, I spent, okay, today I woke up at 8 o'clock and I spent my whole day from 8 o'clock till 4 o'clock literally behind a screen. I stopped to take my dog out for a walk at one point. That's why I got a dog, just to go out of my house more. I spent so much time sitting behind my computer typing away madly and I'm typing stories today list where to take mom for mother's day dinner okay after 20 years I'm writing a list do you hate that <laughs> part of part of it's soul destroying on one level yeah. <laughs> and on the other level it's fantastic because I'm so happy to mention 20 restaurants you guys are all going to feel very differently when you read her like 20 <laughs> best restaurants well, no now. because i could, got to mention 20 restaurants to take mom in. you know like as much as the restaurants say oh you effing bitch chesterman right okay but i'm also helping like i want to fill up those restaurants and mm -hmm. that story is a story to fill up restaurants okay mother's day they're gonna be full anyway okay but they, that story actually is not about mother's day that story people will rip out and they'll keep it's a list that people yeah. keep so 
it's actually we're helping these we're helping restaurants so much even the ones that are full we're saying why they're full you know all these things are a nice job but at the end of the day you also have to earn a living and I just turned 50 this year and I'm like you know as a freelance writer you're always struggling you're all you know I'd rather have a paycheck there's another thing too which is it's an extremely lonely life when you're a writer you're you're home I, I work at home you're home alone a lot you know that's why I got the dog I talked to the dog he's my new best friend you know <laughs> I'm like, what do you think of Croquembouche? The dog's like, I don't know, you know. Like, but but so if if you're in a newsroom, like you're in a newsroom, you're surrounded by a lot of people, whatever, and then and apparently they'll end up hating each other, but whatever, because they're all together too much. But it's it's a very tough life, and also you know eating is great, but there's one thing we didn't talk about tonight, which is very important, which is after doing this for so long. Actually, what I do, and we, we talked about this on the phone, all I'm actually doing is looking for the most delicious things to tell you to go and try them, and, which is super fun. Like, that's a great way to earn a living. I'm not digging ditches, you know. I'm not a lawyer defending criminals who goes to restaurants in his spare time, right? But this is a great thing because eating and drinking is one of life's great pleasures you know I guess I could also be like a sex columnist you know like like you could write about all these things that are fun but but it, it really is a great thing to to come here and sit down and look at the plate and look at the chef why did the chef decide to do this and is this properly done and what is the feeling here and what is what why did they put that rose there and do these lights work yes these lights work and like and and oh, who's sitting at the table and like what you're doing is you're just this little sensor and you're writing about exactly what's going on around <coughs> you and you have to pick up on all these things and you might get some things wrong but actually it doesn't really matter it's really more about what you're feeling so it's a nice thing to just sit there and be the reader's eyes you know like the best thing a reader can say is, I live vicariously. A lot of people tell me they read, but they never go out to eat because they don't, ha they don't have the money. It's expensive to go out to eat, you know? And they say, I live through you. I live vicariously through you. So that's a big treat to do that every week. But, at, you know, at the end of the day, you, you also have to earn a living. And all of these media jobs are disappearing, like, so fast. So fast. They're just disappearing. I make the same amount of money from my Gazette restaurant review that I made for my first column in 1998. I have not gotten a raise. Not that I haven't asked, right? And I'm very well read. But this, so these are jobs like you, you want, in life you want raises, you want promotions, you want, right? So that it's, it's there, it's, I wouldn't really tell anybody to do it. I mean, maybe if you really love it, you could have a blog. Don't be too positive. <laughs> like, Poor you know. guy in the front who came here for inspiration. He's well, like, damn it. Because criticism is a great thing. Yeah. We all improve through criticism. You know, it's ridiculous. If, if, if you have a friend who just tells you you look great and hot and wonderful every day, get rid of that friend. They want something. You have to have that friend who says, what you said back there at the party, really stupid, right? <laughs> That's what you want because the restaurant, the, the, the good chefs yearn for the criticism and the insecure chefs can't stand the criticism. Chefs who backlash against criticism, usually uh, they, well, what the hell does she know? And you think, well, after 20 years, after a thousand restaurant reviews, I think I might she, know she something. She knows a thing like, or two. But, you know, you don't take it or leave it, right? But even if, if people, my sister, oh, you write this, this, this. I'm like, screw you. And then I fix it all later. You know, the criticism is great. We're going to have to end it there. <laughs> On the high note. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um.